What's up, rich friends? Welcome back to another episode of Net Worth and Chill with me, your host, Vivian Tu, aka your rich BFF and your favorite Wall Street girly. It's May, and you know what that means. APAM, Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. Well, I'm guessing most of you know by now, but for any new besties tuning in, I am a proud Chinese American. I'm a daughter of two immigrants who came to America looking for a better life. And I thought this week would be the perfect time to chat about the immigrant dream. Frankly, I had a pretty run-of-the-mill, high-achieving model minority path up until relatively recently. I was a great student. I went to a quote-unquote top-tier college. I got my fancy Wall Street job. But when I left Wall Street, my parents and I got into a massive fight because they felt like I was throwing the dream away until they found out I ended up making way more money. So today we're going to talk about wealth in the Asian community, unconventional career choices, and what it means to be Asian American. There is nobody better to help guide us through this conversation than world-renowned journalist, New York Times bestselling author, and in her own words, a diehard feminist. Everyone, please welcome Lisa Ling. Hi, Vivian. Hi, Lisa. Thank you so, so much for being on the podcast. And I told you this before we even started recording. I am definitely a little starstruck. My heart's racing. And I don't want to put this pressure on you, but I think you genuinely might have been the first Asian American woman, but also just like Asian person period that I ever saw on what I considered to be white TV. (laughs) You know, not not the stuff that my grandma was watching, but like regular schmegular TV. And that was really inspiring to me as like a little kid. And, you know, speaking of little kids, I'd love to know a little bit more about your childhood. Like what early foundational things led to you becoming the Lisa Lane? <laughs> well, first of all, I'm so happy to be on your podcast. I am a fan of yours and find <laughs> um, all of your posts so important and insightful. And I really do appreciate, you know, all, all these sort of like bite-sized bits of information. And, and I really have been absorbing them pretty vociferously, ferociously. Um, so thank you. It warms my heart and touches my soul to hear that I had an impact on you growing up because I just recorded something for the woman who inspired me to pursue a career in broadcast journalism because she was the only Asian person that I ever saw on a national stage. And that was Connie Chung. Really, I attribute my entire career to her because She allowed me and people who look like me to know what was possible. And as far as media was concerned, uh, because of her role in it, that possibility was broadcast journalism. And so it's kind of a full circle moment hearing you say that. So thank you. And, And that's my little homage to Connie. So I had kind of an unconventional upbringing. My grandparents actually immigrated to the United States in the late 1940s, but my grandfather had studied in the U.S. in the early 1930s, late 20s. He got his undergraduate degree at NYU and an MBA from the University of Colorado. He was one of the few Chinese allowed to get an education here in the United States. My grandmother had a degree from Cambridge in England and spoke British English. <laughs> and my grandfather actually spoke pretty perfect um, English as well after you know eight years of schooling in the United States. Um, but when they finally immigrated to the U.S., my grandfather couldn't get a job in finance because he was Chinese. He just could not get hired. And so my family ended up living in a converted chicken coop and doing odd jobs. And they eventually opened the first Chinese restaurant in a suburb of Sacramento called Carmichael. And the reason why they were able to go out to that suburb, Sacramento itself is a very diverse city and and the roots of the Chinese 
run deep, but they headed out to Carmichael because they could speak such good English. Mm -hmm. And so that allowed them access to this community of Chinese food consumers (laughs) (laughs) where, where they wouldn't have as much competition. But for me, growing up in that community, because my my family ended up staying there, it was pretty challenging to be one of the only Asian families in the community. And because even though my, my grandparents were highly educated, but they were toiling away in this restaurant, money was really hard to come by. I can't say that they actually achieved that American dream. So we were always struggling. I mean, my, my grandparents and my parents, they, they worked endless hours in that restaurant. And it was really hard for them to kind of get a a leg up. They put a lot of pressure on each other and they just, they worked really hard. But, But our path, our family's path was very different than the immigrants who came to this country later after 1965, after the Immigration Naturalization Act. And so we were always, we've always, we've always been incredibly frugal. (laughs) I mean, I think that's a characteristic of Asians in general, but particularly for my family, um, frugality was just always something that was, was sort of like in the forefront of our minds. And unfortunately I did not have a lot of financial literacy Mm -hmm. growing up. I mean, I think like most American kids, which is why um, your BFF (laughs) posts have been so helpful for me, even as I embark upon my 50th year of life. But that's something that I think we certainly need more of. And I could have benefited from that immensely. So you mentioned like growing up and feeling like you were struggling to make ends meet. Did your parents or grandparents ever talk about, you know, feeling resentful? It sounds like your grandparents were highly educated, very much what we would consider like the literate class, like this educated white collar class, and for them to feel like they couldn't get the types of jobs that they had essentially gone to school for. Yeah. How did that impact their relationship with money? Well, this is also kind of a circuitous thing that happened. So my father, they put my, his parents put a lot of pressure on him, so much pressure, and he really rebelled. Mm -hmm. They were pushing him to become a doctor or a dentist, and he just (laughs) I have it. I mean, the pressure was so intense. And so he ended up completing college at a state university, but then going on to work, you know, as a supervisor of something, I don't even know what his title was at an Air Force base. And my parents never really put that that pressure on me, I think, because my my father was 11 when he came to this country. So he didn't come to this country with this sort of immigrant mentality. He was really raised as an American. Yeah. Um, And so they wanted me to get good grades, but they were also working all the time. They couldn't help me. I mean, Mm -hmm. my parents never read a book to me when I was growing up. They they never tutored me in math when I was growing up, which is why I probably suck in math, (laughs) which is why I suck in math now. But I because the TV was always on in my home, it was kind of like my favorite babysitter. I thought, well, if I can work in TV, maybe one day I could have a better life. But there was no one who looked like me on TV except for Connie Chung. And so I tried to pursue a career like Connie's. And so I found out about auditions in a local mall in Sacramento for a teen magazine show called Scratch. And I auditioned for that show along with thousands of other local kids. And I got the job. And that was my first foray into the TV business. It was produced by a local local news affiliate. And so I would, I got an internship in the newsroom and I was just hanging out in the newsroom while I was in high school every day while doing this other show. 
And then after that, I auditioned for a show called Channel One News, which was a show that was seen in middle schools and high schools throughout the country, only in schools. And, and that's when I actually started making a little bit of money. And my parents saw, I mean, it, it wasn't they were, that they were resistant to me pursuing media, but because they didn't see many others who looked like me, it certainly wasn't their first choice. But I started making money when I was pretty young. I mean, I started working at Channel One when I was about 18 years old, and I ended up putting myself through a private university, the University of Southern California. I didn't quite finish because I was traveling all over the world, but <laughs> I put myself through about three and a half years of a private college. And so it was hard for them to challenge my decisions um, and what I did because I was paying for my, I became emancipated financially for my, my, my parents at 17. Can I ask, cause I'm being nosy. What were you paid at Scratch and what were you paid back at Channel One, if you're able to share? I, I wish I could remember. I mean, at Scratch, I was paid hardly anything, like several hundred dollars a week. But at Channel One, I think I was making like $45,000 a year, which for an 18-year-old kid yeah. was a pretty good salary. Mm -hmm. Um, and that increased as I continued working at Channel One. And by 24, I was not only, you know, I'd not only put myself through college, but I bought my first house in LA. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I got pretty good at saving outside of what I was paying for college. Yeah. So tell me why the first, was that like your first big purchase? Why was that a decision to buy a house? Um, I wanted to, I, I wanted an investment. You know, I, no one ever taught me anything about the market or how to invest. And I just thought, you know, it's Los Angeles, it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's Studio City, California, that real estate, you know, everyone always said that real estate was a good investment. And it was a great investment. <laughs> at the time. I mean, by the time I sold it, I had doubled my money. And, you know, in hindsight, I wish I didn't sell it because now that area is so hot. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, for, for, for a young person in her 20s to have doubled her money in a number of years, I used the profits from that selling that house to buy my first apartment in New York City when I moved there when I went to go work for The View. Wow. And did it ever occur to you, like, you know, that there was something else that you should be even doing with that money? Like, or was the house just kind of like you felt like that was your ticket to an investment that you could also happen to live in? You know, Vivian, I think that the house was my first big investment. And, and, to be honest with you, while I did think about it as an investment, for me, it was really like, wow, this is this is my first house. And, mm -hmm. you know, because we didn't grow up with a lot of money and our house was just like always a disaster. <laughs> it always smelled like Chinese food. It was embarrassing to bring kids over. I wanted my own house where, it, you know, where I could have people over and it would not smell like Chinese food. It would smell like roses and beautiful things. So I didn't, I wasn't thinking about it as an investment so much as just a, a really cool place to to live. But it was fortunate that I did make that investment because I, I, I would end up doubling my money later on. You mentioned that like the house smelled like Chinese food. And that is like something that's very vivid in my memory as well. Like my house always smelled like Chinese food. And I loved it because I was always like, just like a hungry little kid. <laughs> you know, there's this tradition or like even a trope that like all the young kids in the family worked at the restaurant. Did you find that to be the case? with you growing up? Were you, were you working at the restaurant or were you trying to do your best to distance yourself from that culture as much as possible? So I never worked in the restaurant. In fact, my grandparents sold the restaurant. They ended up owning a couple before I was even born. Um, and my grandmother who, who lived with us actually didn't even want me to learn how to cook. 
because for her, you know, when you when you're so educated, right, and you, and then you're forced to work in a restaurant and and toil away in the kitchen seven days a week because you know Chinese restaurants don't close Mm-mm. for holidays, for weekends, Never. or anything. Um, she wanted better for me, so she actually was against me even learning how to cook because for her, you know, cooking just symbolized something that 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 she wanted us to be able to overcome. So we never worked in a restaurant. I just, I got really good at going out. (laughs) So much of my money was spent on restaurants and and going out for food and just buying quick meals. And to this day, I'm very fortunate that I married a man who loves to cook (laughs) because I still don't cook. Yeah, but but you're right. Restaurants for so many immigrants, um, because there were things like the Chinese Exclusion Act, which prevented people of Chinese descent from becoming citizens or owning property. Restaurants were, were one of the few things that Chinese people and Asian people could own that would allow them to have some semblance of the American dream. Yeah. And ironically, it's really it still continues to confound me that a community that suffered from so much discrimination, I mean, not just the the Chinese Exclusion Act, but the the racism that that the early Chinese and Japanese settlers endured, the murders, the lynchings, um, the policies that were enacted, you know, were, were, were so grounded in racism. Yet, somehow, Chinese food and later Asian food became so ubiquitous in fact, more ubiquitous than McDonald's in yeah. America. And that still is so amazing to me that these restaurants had been able to sort of like transcend all of that discrimination and, and really are part of the fabric and the story of America. Yeah, it's hard to feel like they hate the people but love our food. A big comment that I get when I create content about how race impacts finances is why is this girl talking about this? Asian people are all doctors, lawyers, engineers. They're rich. They're, you know, the best off minority, statistically even better than white people. And, you know, I'd love to hear from you because, you know, you, you are such an expert. Like, why is this so bifurcated in that you have this very, very like elite class of Asians who have these very high paying jobs, but you also have the very traditional thing, when you close your eyes, you think of Chinese restaurants, you think of Korean laundromats, you think of Vietnamese nail salons, Cambodian donut shops. Like, why is there such a difference between the two? And like, what created that gap? Well, I mean, this is, there's so much to unpack here. Baby. <laughs> um, but first of all, the the Asian American diaspora is mm-hmm. so vast and so disparate. And in fact, the uh, you know, income inequality in the AAPI community is is the widest of any community. Yes, there are AAPIs who are exceedingly wealthy, but there are also AAPIs who are at the bottom of the economic ladder. Um, In fact, I was just in New York City and I was out with a bunch of friends. They happened to be AAPI friends at some fancy restaurant. And we were outside and we saw all these elderly Asian grandparents who were picking cans um, out of the out of the trash. I hate seeing that. It makes me so sad. I mean, I, I, I actually broke down, um, you know, in New York, everything's so concentrated. So, you know, I know it happens here in LA where I live, but in LA, you know, you're out at these restaurants and within your pure purview, you're seeing all these things happening, including numerous Asian seniors who are working so hard to collect those cans while, while 
New York City is partying all around them. Mm -hmm. So in New York City in particular, Asians are some of the poorest um, mm -hmm. individuals in the entire city and elder Asians and, and those who are so vulnerable to being attacked in recent years are some of the poorest uh, in our community. And I was also this week, I was um, helping to open this career center for an organization that is working on reentry services for formerly incarcerated people. And a couple formerly incarcerated AAPI um, individuals approached me and and told me about this organization. And I, I was like, wow, well, I, I mean, the, the, the AAPI population in the prison system seems to be so much smaller than other demographics. And they said, actually, it's the fastest growing demographic in the California prison system. And even though Southeast Asians are 1% of the population in California... They are 5% of the population in the prisons, in California prisons. And that just, that just shocked me. I had no idea because when you go into the prison system, it's sort of like overwhelming and you see large groups of particular demographics and Asians certainly seem to be the smallest, but I was astounded to learn that it's the fastest growing segment um, of the prison population and those who are recently released from the East, a Southeast Asian community are the most likely to then be deported. They have the fastest deportation rates of any community. So, you know, we're talking about a community that is perceived in America, right, to be uh, the, the model minority, right, to be wealthy, hardworking, keep, they, they keep their heads down and, and don't ruffle feathers. But you also have this community that literally lives in the shadows, that is among the poorest the most deported, increasingly, you know, some of the most incarcerated members of that same community. And so that's one of the reasons why I think there's so much confusion, right? Because the community is so vast, so diverse, and so disparate. And that model minority characterization really overshadows so many of the other stories that are not being told about, about the community. I mean, if you recall, a couple of weeks ago, there was that horrific shooting in Half Moon Bay. Mm -hmm. And the, the shooter was a, a senior citizen in his 60s, and he killed farm workers who were reputedly living in shipping containers um, and in trailers, but also senior citizens who were working in the farms and in the fields. I didn't know that this community existed because these wow. are members of the community, again, whose stories are never told. No. And, you know, I think we all really loved watching Crazy Rich Asians and seeing this blockbuster success that literally had, you know, only faces that looked like ours, but yeah, loved it. How do you feel that's really impacted the financial perception of us as a community? Because I get nervous now when people are like, well, aren't all Asians crazy rich? I'm like, no, 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 no. That's not, that's not everyone. Yeah. I mean, look, Vivian, I loved that movie and Love. like, Oh my God, Henry Golding is just like so dreamy. <laughs> I loved it. And it was just like the most awesome, fun rom-com I had seen in so long. But, you know, that notion of Asians being crazy rich and everyone in that cast kind of adhering to that stereotype. And then these shows like Bling Empire, Follow Along, and these other shows that are derivative of that same idea. I think that that overabundance of those kinds of tropes, right? They start to become ingrained in our in our psyche. And then you have this 
conflict, these growing tensions between the United States and China, which is arguably, um, you know, if not like the biggest economy, it's soon to be the biggest economy in the world. And so there are all these dynamics at play that make it really hard for those of us Asian Americans um, to try and get other stories out. And, and to try and convince people that that's not the only story, that the story of um, AAPIs in this country is just, is just so much more complex than mm-hmm. the headlines. What would you say is the biggest myth about the Asian community? I mean, I think it's that, that uh, the Asian community is just a, a bunch of rich, um, keep your head down, hardworking folks who don't speak out on issues. Like those, I think those tropes are what people believe the AAPI community to be. And it's just, you know, certainly, certainly those individuals exist in the community, but that completely overshadows and overlooks like the breadth of, of the community and how multidimensional and how complex the issues are in the community. Yeah. Totally. And, you know, I think I was reading this New York Times piece about the H-1B visa and how obviously you're going to have this very educated, typically well-off class when you're hand-plucking doctors, very employable engineers, you know, computer scientists, lawyers, whatever, from Asian nations to bring over here for that specific purpose to build our economy. And then you have Asians also coming from fleeing war-torn areas and refugees showing up with nothing but the clothes on their back. So I think that dichotomy is just really, really interesting. These days, I like to call you in my head, the queen of Asian Americans. You are like literally the biggest champion. I feel like one of the loudest voices. It's you made being proud to be Asian American, like cool. And I'm curious, have you always been so proud to be Asian? Because I grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood and I was very embarrassed growing up. Well, you know, you even saying those things to me makes me emotional because the truth of the matter is that I carried so much shame about Mm -hmm. being Asian for a significant part of my life, certainly my youth, because again, I I grew up in an all-white community where I was teased mercilessly about being different from everyone else. And after I moved to Los Angeles and this whole world opened up to me of diversity and the most incredible Asian food, like <laughs> I went from <laughs> hating the smell of Cantonese stir fry to just like this cornucopia of different Asian flavors and scents and cultures in Los Angeles. And it really embraced me so profoundly. And I came to just fall so deeply in love with my culture in in its vastness. And when I say my culture, I don't just mean the Taiwanese or the Chinese culture. I mean Asian American culture. Because when you think about it, the Asian American culture is in and of itself its own unique culture. I mean, my husband is Korean American, but he and I have more in common with each other than I I do with anyone from China or he with anyone from Korea. Our community is its own unique community. And I think over the last couple of years in particular, as attacks on Asian people have increased exponentially in the wake of COVID, I think that realization that we are our own community uh, has really started to resonate with a lot of people. And I have found the greatest comfort among my AAPI friends whose ancestors or whose relatives come from so many different parts of Asia. And I think that you know, being Asian was never something that I tried to wear proudly on my sleeve by any means, because I actually thought that in the media, people might might not want me to be as Asian, right? So I tried to be 
present as white adjacent yeah. as I could. But over the last couple of years has come this realization, I think, in the media that the the perception of Asians or the depictions of Asians have been really demeaning and stereotypical. And and so many of us in the in the community are unwilling to continue to promote those kinds of 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 characterizations and are demanding more authenticity from media and and in all sectors of our our uh, population and our economy. Yeah, and you touched upon probably the most terrifying thing happening to our community right now is that there's just been so many violent attacks. And like, I don't even know if this is the right word, but like every time I see a new headline, I'm like tired. I'm like, why? Like, why are you beating an Asian, little old Asian grandma over the head with a two by four? Like, you, like why are people doing this? And, you know, it, it does come back to this like really like overt racism, but what do you think we as a community, but also people who are listening, who care, who want to support, you know, their AAPI friends, family, whatever, what can we do? Well, look, it, it has been exhausting for all of us, but at the same time, we cannot become immune, right? Or we cannot turn our backs on it no. because there are a lot of exciting things that are happening in the AAPI community. You know, I mean, there's so much happening in the media, in politics, in business that is just like, you know, it has been unprecedented, right? The opportunities that are availing themselves have been really unprecedented. We cannot turn our backs on, you know, those in our community who are not only less fortunate, who are the ultimate victims of attacks, you know, who are struggling, who are ending up in prison, right? Because they don't have resources and don't have communities to come back to. You know, I think that it's incumbent upon those of us who have been able to eke out some semblance of success Mm-hmm. in this country to always remember to give back and to offer helping hands if we can to those who are less fortunate or those who have just been bearing the weight of discrimination and economic deprivation for so long. I think it's so important for us to to always have our community in its totality, in totality, right? Mm-hmm. At, at the, in the forefront of our minds. Totally. And what would you say is like your best piece of career or money advice that you'd give to young Asian people listening in, both in how they can enrich themselves and their lives, but also give back to the community? I've been thinking a lot about this lately, Vivian. And and look, I, I think that material success... Yeah. Right. Has has always been a really important aspirational component of our community. Right. Like the success term. Yeah. I mean, it's just, <laughs> I, I don't know where it comes from or why, but um, being able to consume. Right. Mm-hmm. Being able to to achieve has been really important for our community. And and lately I've been thinking a lot about what it all means. Right. right. To what end are we continuously trying to matriculate and to consume and to succeed. I read such a profound book uh, not too long ago called Braiding Sweetgrass. You know, it's a best-selling book that was written by a botanist who is also a Native American. And it talks about how Native people always practice reciprocity in everything that they do. They never consumed more than they needed. And whenever they would take from the earth, they would give back and they would honor what they took. Unfortunately, I think that our culture, not just the Asian culture, but we have gone the opposite direction. You know, for so long, my generation, we never thought about 
you know, consuming resources. We never thought about conservation because we didn't have to. Resources were abundant. But now that the whole world is trying to compete for the same limited resources, we find they're, you know, becoming this gross scarcity and it's only increasing. And so what I've been trying to think a lot about lately is how to be models for the younger generation, for my own kids on being more, you know, practicing more reciprocity with the earth and with our natural resources and only buying what we really need rather than feeling this need. I mean, for so many of us, you know, a vacation is synonymous with shopping. Like that's all we want to do. We go to Paris, all we want to shop. When we go to New York, what is there to do but shop, shop? You're like, we just want to shop. But like, I would challenge all of us to start thinking about whether we really need all this stuff, why it makes us feel the way it does. And at a certain point, like how much can you consume before you start to kind of feel empty? Right. And, and is there a point where you start to realize, like, what is all this about <laughs> and what does it mean? When's and enough? Me, increasingly, I just I want to continue to do work that means something that is important to me, that isn't the material piece of it doesn't define me. And I'm not there by any means. Like this is a, <laughs> a, a growing, a process of growing and learning, but that's just kind of where my head is right now. And so I would say the long answer to your question about what's the best piece of advice I've been given lately, it's to try and practice a, a greater level of reciprocity with resources. And you mentioned uh, that you have, you know, you want to feel really fulfilled going forward. Obviously, you've had a very illustrious career. Is there anything coming up, anything that you're working on that you're really proud of? I'm working on so many different things. <laughs> um, I've got a couple scripted projects in the works. I'm working on a book with my sister. There's another show that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do. But every one of the projects, Vivian, is something that is provocative that, that will make you think. I mean, one of the things I'm proudest of in my work is we often explore communities or people who you think you know, mm -hmm. who really go deep and introduce you to communities that you might have not thought about before you or you think you know, but kind of giving you a, a sense of the multidimensional aspect of their character, right? That, that things aren't so black and white. And so every project that I'm working on, I think allows for those kinds of feelings, right? Um, or the, that sort of process to happen in our, in our souls. And now that we've kind of touched on the future, Let's talk about the past. Is there anything career, money-wise, that you would do differently, do over, if you could? You'll be horrified to hear this, Vivian, because you're my rich BFF. Oh, no. <laughs> but um, I have never really kept such good track of my finances. I've been so fortunate to have been able to do work that I'm proud of, that I'm excited about, that I think means something. And people have up until, you know, up until now continued to hire me for things that, that align with, you know, who I am or my brand. And I think the reason why I've been okay is because I would, or, or the reason why this, this may not be the best advice is like, I would probably do a lot of these things for free because I'm so passionate about it. <laughs> and, I, and I'm not, I've never really been driven by how much I could make doing this job. In fact, that's why I've, I have agents and they say to me, Lisa, don't ever talk about money. Let us do that for you because we know that you would do it for free and you need to get paid a little bit for it. <laughs> 
Um, and so I would say that a big regret of mine is just is just that I I haven't kept better track and mm -hmm. I haven't invested as well as I think I could in an array of different things, not just real estate. And I would have taken the time to sort of learn about how my money is working and also, frankly, how my money could be helping people. Yeah. Because these days, there are increasingly more opportunities to invest in companies or projects that align with your values more. I love that so much, especially because, you know, you've seen the stats that a teeny tiny fraction of VC funding goes to women, it goes to people of color. And, you know, to have someone like you saying like, I wish I could better invest in things that actually make a difference that I care about, you know, founders that I believe in, like, I think that's really cool. I'm, I'm certainly on the older end of, <laughs> of the, you know, economy. Um, but I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that young people or a lot of young people feel similarly that they don't want some financial advisor to just sort of invest their money willy nilly, that they really want to know where their money is going and how, if possible, that money can even help companies that are doing work that aligns with their values. And, you know, you mentioned you were at Scratch, you went to Channel One, you were on The View, and you obviously had your, basically your title host show on CNN. This is Life with Lisa Ling. I love to end, you know, on a high note. I know we're running out of time. Like, what would you say is the greatest thing you ever did in your career? And what advice are you able to give to other young people that they can take away from what you've learned? I think for me, doing the show, This Is Life, and I also did the show Takeout on HBO Max that it was about you know, Asian American history, oh, yeah, through, I know. history <laughs> through the lens of Asian food. And I guess for me, Vivian, I mean, look, everybody has to do what they have to do, you know, like put in your time. Right. And, and I would say like, don't, don't be impatient, just have that kind of goal in mind. And, and I think my goal was always, wasn't so much like, what can, what job can I do that makes me the most money? Like that's never been important to me. For me, it's always been what kind of work can I do that will allow me to support myself and have a decent life, but that, that makes an impact that provokes people to think. I don't want to just do any any TV job. Look, I couldn't say this 10, you know, I couldn't say this 20 years ago when I was kind of coming up in this industry. I hosted those Oscar pre-shows, you know, which I hated doing because I hated interviewing celebrities. And and I don't regret that I did that, but now I'm in a place where I can say I don't want to just do any TV job. I want to do jobs that really make a difference. So asking me that now, right? And asking me that 20 years ago, is a, you'll get a very different answer. But what I will say to those who are sort of coming up in the world, right? Don't, don't, don't be impatient. You know, you got to put in the work and there are no shortcuts. You know, we're such a culture that is so hell bent on instant gratification. But the reason why it's important to kind of put in put in the work and do the work is because it's all, it's, it, it's all a learning experience and what you experience as you are coming up and the people that you will interact with. There's so much to learn from and so many people whose advice you can envelop along the way. And so that when you get to this place where I am, you'll be in a better position to be able to say like, now I, I can, I can pick and choose a, mm -hmm. a little more. Uh, yeah, Lisa, that's what I'm trying to do here. I'm trying to like turn you into my mentor. Um, but I love that. I love that you're like, you know, let your day job fund your daydream. And that's yeah. awesome now that you're at a point in your career where you do what you want. And, you know, I think 
a lot of us out there are working for that moment and hoping to get there sooner rather than And it will come. I mean, look, I'm not a spring chicken. It's taken a long time. (laughs) And along the way, you know, there've been a lot of like cuts and scrapes and bruises and there's still things that I'm learning to do. I mean, one last thing I would share is like as an Asian woman, it's been really, really difficult to find my voice. I mean, I mentioned I have agents, right? Mm -hmm. Who negotiate on my behalf. I wish that I knew my worth and that I stood up for myself more so that I didn't need someone else to be able to exclaim my worth. And so that is advice that I would like to impart to younger Asian women is really, really know your worth and stand up for yourself. Um, I would tell my younger self to do that. And I would want to instill that in her because I think that that would have probably made a big, big difference in my own life and career along the way. I love that so much. Thank you so much for all of your sage wisdom. Thank you for hanging out with me. I really do appreciate it. And I think our listeners will too. Well, it's been a pleasure, Vivian. And I truly am so appreciative of your bits of wisdom every day. I I (laughs) just love it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Net Worth and Chill. If you like this episode, make sure to leave a rating and a review and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Got a financial question you want answered in the future? You can leave me a voicemail or text me at 908-858-3410. Make sure to follow me at Your Rich BFF across social media for even more relatable financial content. Special thanks to my team at Audioboom as well as Range Media and WME. See you next week. Bye!